Luxury Podcast. My name is Justin Weller. Today is Saturday, September 19th, and I'm about to play for you a great conversation I had with my friend. His name is Graham Woodbrook. He's an Australian, a 40-plus business executive, and an author. He's written a book called Why God, Why Now, and has a blog at uh, trybelieving.com. And uh, he's just a great person to speak to, especially along the lines of religion. So it's great to speak with him, and here we go. Well, Graham, how are you doing today? It's great to uh, be with you. Justin, it's, uh, it's nice to be back with you after, I think we said nine years, wonderful. Yeah, it's been forever, and I appreciate you joining and, and taking some time to talk to us. I think uh, the listeners will get a get an interesting perspective on a number of things. And, and so um, I did want to start, you know, obviously folks may be able to tell that you are an Australian, and I um, have been reading your book, which is called Why God Why. It's available, I know for sure, on Amazon and Kindle. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the beginning of the book talks a lot about your childhood in Australia. And I'm curious, as an Australian, um, you know, how did, how did growing up in Australia sort of inform your life? And how is it different from uh, the United States? Like, what are the, what are the things that uh, stick out to you as, as the differences between Australia and the, and the U.S.? Well, I, you know, I think uh, looking back, um, we had tremendous, as children, we had tremendous amount of freedom. Um, and growing up meant basically that I could spend my summers barefoot, hitchhiking to the beach with my friends every day. Um, our parents, frankly, just telling us, come home before dark uh, and not having any way to communicate with us. Uh, trusted that we would, in fact, come home before dark. Um, from a cultural standpoint, um, certainly as I was becoming a teenager and, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I had radio. We didn't have television. Um, television uh, was something we got, I think, when I was around 12 or 13. Um, and, of course, we were very much influenced um, both by American music and American film. Uh, but also by British film, which was which produced many, many, many films that uh, that I was able to see with my family as, as a kid or down at the matinee. Um, we also had, um, because I lived in Perth and the um, port of Fremantle, where the both the British and American navies um, would come in periodically, and uh, my my parents would call down and and quite often invite. Uh, officers to come home and have uh, a home-cooked meal and they would reciprocate by inviting us to go down to visit the ship and and uh, have drinks in the wardroom. Um, so as a kid, I got to, uh, to meet American sailors, uh, British sailors, uh, got to sit in uh, the cockpit of a scimitar jet on the Ark Royal ha- uh, aircraft carrier, British aircraft carrier, um, which um, which really gave me my fascination in flying. Um, so I think we were influenced um, both by American and British culture uh, significantly. And of course, the underlying Australian culture, pretty hardy folks. Um, at one time or another, we were dealing with uh, floods or droughts or bushfires. Um, 
and of course the population uh, was and remains today um, probably 90 plus percent uh, located in five cities around the coast. So the interior was a no man's land for the most part. I remember um, when I first went into the army, they transported us back and forth from Perth to the East Coast by train, which was a five-day adventure because every state had a different gauge railway line. Oh, wow. So you would literally change trains at each each state? Yes. It was, <laughs> it was, quite, it was quite an ordeal. Um, I recall, uh, at least on one segment, I think it was from Adelaide to Melbourne, um, and it may have been overnight, uh, but we uh, rushed to grab uh, the whatever luggage ra- overhead luggage rack was available because it was basically the only opportunity to try to get asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, how is it, how would you say at what age did you did you come to America and how, what were the biggest shocks and and you know how is it different than than Australia? I think my first trip to America was probably around 1970. Um, I made a trip to Hawaii and the West Coast. Uh, in fact, it was probably in 1972 or three. I was working for Air New Zealand at the time, <clears throat> and um, I was I was frankly amazed um, at at everything, um, particularly in Hawaii. I always remember going to breakfast and getting um, bacon and eggs, coffee and orange juice, and I think it was about two dollars fifty or something ridiculous. Um, just the uh, the size of populations, uh, the the number of people, cars um, everywhere. Uh, it was it was uh, very very stimulating, but very very different. Um, the biggest change, I think, is not when I came to America, but what I see forty two years later uh, in the America today. And quite honestly. Uh, I could not have conceived of where we are now back then. How do you mean? I think uh, the culture, the society, politics, um, I think everything has uh, has gone through a sea change. Uh, and I'm not sure it's for the better, but, but uh, certainly is vastly different to that which I first came to. And of course, my first real... Um, moving here occurred in 1974. Um, I was, um, no, sorry, it would be 78. Um, I had joined uh, Citibank in Australia in, uh, it was 1973. Um, I was moved to Hong Kong as a, as a regional vice president for one of Citicorp's uh, divisions where I resided for four years, and then I came in 1978 um, to run an international uh, group for that same division. And um, of course, I had to get a green card, which took four and a half years. Uh, And then I didn't get my citizenship until uh, 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, that's excellent. That's kind of one of the questions I want to ask you too. I think that uh, your experience there at City and, and I think others. Did I read right? You you you've traveled to 170 countries. No, 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 no. I had uh, when I was when I was running the international division for what was called uh, 
City Corp services, um, we did business in 170 ah. countries. I only did business in 53. Oh, only 53. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've traveled to in excess of 70, um, targeting a goal of 100. I'm not sure if I'll get there, but that's, <laughs> that's my bucket list hope anyway. That's amazing. I I don't know the number, but I would guess the number of countries I've been in is less than ten. So, what have you? What are the lessons there? Where's your favorite spot? Uh, what What have you learned through so much travel? Uh, I think the overarching thing I've learned, whether it was in grass huts in Kenya, hmm. burets in Fiji, or sophisticated apartments in uh, Belgium. Um, Parents everywhere, um, I think universally, want something better for their children uh, than they themselves had. And I, I think that's a pretty much a universal truth. Um, of course, the other thing is you should never stop learning because I think the great thing about travel and that which I've encouraged all my daughters uh, to embark on is to really broaden your perspective, your horizons, to really see, experience, uh, engage with other societies and, and learn how other people live. Um, I think one of the challenges for America and Americans is we tend to be fairly insular mm. um, and, um, and uh, to, to a large extent, just don't have a very good conception of the world outside uh, the 50 states. Yeah, I think that's true for a uh, vast majority of folks, and and it does um, come up as an issue as we as we look at certain things. But I before we get there, I did want to talk to you a little bit more. You you talked a little bit about your family, and when we had spoken, uh, you know, planning this podcast, uh, you had mentioned, and I think it's okay for you to talk about. But tell me if it's not that, you know, you had an experience that was you know quite honestly deep and painful and informed a lot of. Uh, what you write about now? Do you want to? Do you want to share with us sort of that that story? I'm happy to, but which particular aspect <laughs> or event are you referring to? Oh, okay. There's there's more than one. Um, I was thinking of uh, the car accident and uh, wife and kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, it had a huge impact on me and my two younger daughters. Obviously, um, it goes to show you that your life can be turned upside down in a nanosecond, um, which is pretty much what happened. Um, my wife, uh, as I believe you know from the book, was ejected uh, out the back of the minivan, um, had her neck broken and uh, ended up severely compromised, brain damaged and quadriplegic, quadriplegic. Um, and would live in a nursing home for uh, for eight more years. Um, my younger daughter, Katie, had both her legs um, very badly broken. Her uh, left femur was shattered. Uh, her right tibia fibula was broken, and she would spend months um, in a variety of uh, devices to try to rejoin um, her bones. Um, which uh, was very painful and very difficult to watch. Um, you know, after the accident, when everybody got medevaced in helicopters and ambulances, um, my mother-in-law was in the car with us. Um, 
I really was standing somewhat dumbfounded at the admissions desk. And one of the things I've always prided myself on is, is uh, remaining very, very calm in, in the face of crises. But I was really standing and thinking, you know, my God, what, what do I do now? Mm. And uh, as I explained in the book, I had this very palpable experience of Christ Jesus um, being beside me and saying, lean on me um, and, and let me help you. Mm. Uh, and I think it was from that point that my investigation of faith and religion um, really took off in a, in a more sincere way, um, a more exploratory way, um, and it changed a lot of my perspectives. Yeah, so were you religious before? Were you a churchgoer? You know, what was, what was that like? Um, yes, I had been. Uh, you know, I grew up as a kid with um, uh, basically the Church of England, hmm. although my parents had sent my sister and I to a uh, um, pre, not a preschool, it was a, a Sunday school at a Church of Christ, which was fairly near to our home. I don't remember a lot about... Um, church life uh, as a child. Um, I know I was baptized. Uh, I became confirmed um, the first time I went into the army. Um, and I had various experiences growing into my adult life uh, of church. Um, when I came to the United States, um, I participated in the Episcopal Church um, and attended All Saints in uh, Beverly Hills, which, um, interestingly enough, uh, was the church that Fred Astaire attended. Um, I always marveled at the fact that he sat in the last pew totally alone uh, and left immediately after the service. But um, so that experience sort of carried on. Um, we were attending the church. Oh, I had just begun attending a church just prior to the accident. Uh, in New Tampa because we just moved here from South Florida when I uh, opened up an office for the company with which I was working. Yeah, so um, take me back again, and you you referenced it, but I think this is really powerful. That you know that moment. I mean, I just can't imagine what your experience was like with with that tragedy of the car accident and your wife and 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 child being injured so grievously uh, and you know that moment that you talked about tell me more about that admissions standing in admissions and and feeling the the presence of christ like well it, it brought was... a it brought a very calming effect and it restored focus mm -hmm. um you know when i was living in hong when i was working in hong kong uh with city um I'd actually first gone up there because my the guy that hired me, my boss, uh, the regional um, vice president, had taken ill. I'd only been with the the, the bank, I think, um, ten months. <clears throat> Pardon me, but um, I sent a telex off to um, New York and said if they wanted me to, I would go up and uh, and do the uh, the regional budget because we were just in the midst of getting into the budget. Um, anyway, long story short, um, Dick, Dick Lacey was his name, 
turned out had um, um, cancer that was just riddled throughout his body and and uh, um, I had to take over and not only take over the budget and focus on something I was only very limited uh, in my knowledge of but also had to focus on taking care of he and his wife uh, getting them medevac back to the United States so in this situation of my own um, I needed to be able to refocus I needed to be able to put things back into some kind of perspective of priority and the priority obviously was that I had my wife um, in this horrendous traction machine up on one floor in uh, adult um, intensive care and my youngest daughter um, three floors down um, in pediatric uh, intensive care and my my world for weeks if not I think a couple of months was basically running up and down between those three floors mm. um, so I think what that experience helped me with was to maintain balance uh, to maintain perspective and to maintain priorities um, which was critically important obviously yeah I can only imagine um, and you you referenced a bit I'd like to hear more you said that that uh, really changed or developed or maybe informed a new perspective on God and religion. Take, take us through that. Like, what was that process like? Um, you know, I really wanted to go beyond the superficial, um, turning up at church on Sunday, um, either every week or every other week or whatever the heck it was. Uh, I wanted to dig in. I wanted to know who is this person of Jesus Christ? Um, what can we know about him? Um, what is the triune God of which he is a part? And um, how do I put that in a context of my life, the world, the universe, um, everything about me? So uh, it really, yeah, and I've always been one who, as I say, never forget to ask the next question. Um, it's kind of been a maxim that I follow uh, and have followed uh, pretty much throughout my life. I've, I've always been questioning. Um, I've always been interested in a variety of topics and subjects, and I've always wanted to seek more, but not about any one thing. Um, and I think this probably more than anything else focused me on one thing which was the nature of god and how god uh reveals himself to us as mankind so well that begs the question and it's funny i had written it down as one i wanted to ask what is the nature of god <laughs> well i think i think the simplest answer that and i i often have dialogue with my dear friend bishop um Kevin Donlan on these topics, and of course he says, well, the, the nature of God is love. Um, and I certainly accept that to be the case, but of course, when you go to the other side of the equation, the atheist says, well, how can a loving God uh, allow such a mess as we find ourselves in as humankind? Um, and of course that then begs um, 
inquiry into deeper questions, which is, who are we? What are we? Why are we here? And, and uh, you know, what are we supposed to try to do with this temporary time that we occupy this, I can't remember which author called it, this flesh bag, <laughs> uh, we call a body. Um, and of course, we're not just made up of body, we're body, we're mind, and we're spirit. Um, and I think the the obligation that we have is to use our intelligence, our curiosity, our God-given curiosity, um, to try to seek answers to those difficult questions. And of course, there are some that we're never going to answer, nor do I think we're supposed to be able to answer, but I don't think we should ever stop inquiring um, and, and seeking ways uh, in which to arrive at those answers. I mean, obviously, science, even today, let alone back in Darwin's time, uh, science can neither prove nor disprove the existence of God. Um, but does that mean that we stop and say, well, then it's impossible, we have nothing else to do, but to just say, well, life is what it is, get on with it. But uh, I don't think that's the case. I, I think we're, <coughs> excuse me, I think we're supposed to um, find other ways to arrive at some conclusion about the reality of God in the universe or not. And of course, that boils down largely to uh, the faith doctrine. Um, faith is the only way to close that gap between science and what we call religion. Um, which is man's interpretation of, uh, of God's interaction with us. Um, I prefer to see the spiritual connection with God um, as being more meaningful and instructive because whenever we get man involved in anything, as you well know, um, we're bound to see things getting screwed up. <laughs> Yeah, there's so much in there, right? And and I think, um, you know, it's obviously uh, something that uh, many scholars and writers and poets have, have tried to solve. But I, I do agree with you in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of trap of science versus religion, like, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, right? Like, when, if you take a, a work like the Bible, there was no such thing as a scientist when that was written. And it wasn't an attempt to explain necessarily the, you know, objects or, or the physical world. It had much more to do with, with I think, describing both, uh, you know, to your point, why we're here and what's our, the nature and relationship with God and, and quite honestly, how best to live, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think that's, that's I think that's an important point. I'm I'm currently reading um, um, the Moral Quest by Stanley Grintz, um, and uh, one of the things that jumped out at me was when he says that the uh, that only in the context of a stable society can individuals seek their personal well-being. Um, I think that's pretty compelling. I, I I suspect that the people of Venezuela currently. Uh, don't feel an ability to seek uh, their individual well-being, mm. um, let alone people in um, Iran or 
uh, even China uh, and many other parts of the world. Um, and I think if we look back over time um, through any peoples anywhere in the world, um, whether we look at the uh, the Mayan or the Aztec or the Australian Aboriginal or the the Native American communities, um, um, what we find is uh, people have always been looking in wonderment up at the stars and asking those big questions. You know, why am I here? What happens when I die? Um, and I, I think religion um, and philosophy tries to help us to come to terms in answering those questions. Um, of course, the, the, the atheist would say, you know, this is a bunch of rot. Um, it is just us. We're here. And, and uh, when we die, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we're gone. Um, I, I can't find any rational basis on which to confine the spirit that is in me into nothingness. Uh, and that's really where I feel this obligation to try to understand the fact that we are spiritual beings occupying a physical body as opposed to physical beings occupying a spiritual body. And when, when you change looking at things through that lens, you have a whole different set of priorities and perspectives. So, so uh, why are we here, and what happens when we die? Um, well, I think I think from a biblical perspective, the answer to that's fairly clear. Um, we're we're called to increasingly um, use our life to grow, um, to grow into a positive individual that has a positive influence on others and on our society to be a contributor. Um, and I think uh, when we die, um, we will be judged on how well we do that. People don't like the notion of judgment, hmm. which takes us down a whole different path, um, which might include law, but um, people don't want to be judged. And yet judgment is the ultimate um, obligation we must face uh, if we're a Christian person. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy. And the consequences are not pleasant. Um, we face, I believe, the consequence of a life eternal in God's presence or a life eternal outside of God's presence. So if I look at the world today, which is pretty messed up, um, and we increasingly are looking at crime becoming um, more acceptable rather than less. If we look at lying, cheating, thieving, adultery, murder, um, go through any of the things that beset society and make us afraid today, afraid for our children, we fear letting our young children go out, unlike when I was a child, mm -hmm. um, what a horrible way to have to live. 
And yet I think for the non-Christian, um, that is the life to which you are uh, condemned, if you will. And that's not where I want to be personally. Um, and of course, there's going to be other, you know, very, very strong points of view opposing that, and that's okay. Uh, we can agree to disagree. Um, but for me, I will follow my Lord. Mm. Yeah, it brings up an interesting question that I'd like to ask you. Uh, and, it, you know, the background is is personal for me, right? So I was raised in the Catholic Church, like, like many folks. Um, and I pretty much left it as soon as I was confirmed. You know, in, in my church, you were confirmed at 17, and it's something... As I look back now, I did because my probably because my parents, especially my mother, wanted me to do it, and I didn't get much out of it. And uh, but you know, throughout my adult life, I've spent uh, I think a, a big part of my thought <laughs> process trying to understand the same questions and and understand you know um, uh, how God and what God the nature of God and and what that means and all those things. So my question is really about um, utility versus dogma. So like, you know, I find a lot of wonderful lessons in the Bible and, um, I think they have merit and value again in, in the way that you may live your life. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I question, you know, the, the historicness of it. And so my question is, is, is it important, uh, to, you know, to believe in, I guess, tell me what your thoughts are there. Like, in other words, is it important to, to believe the Bible is, is fact and it happened? Or is, is there a certain utility in the lessons and the stories? Well, I think, you know, we're taught that the Bible is the inspired work of God. So um, God interacts with man and through that interaction, whether it's through um, a revealing in dreams um, or otherwise, um, God communicates expectations. Um, the challenge, I think, when we get into the Old Testament is, you know, we find a God that's pretty ruthless mm -hmm. so that um, the, the Christian says, well, I don't think I like that God without understanding the context um, in which this interaction between the creator and the created man in the form of Abram, who we come to know as Abraham, uh, occurs. And as I said, I, I think if you look across all peoples um, around the world, early man, uh, it strikes me that God obviously didn't just try to speak to this little band out in, in the middle of nowhere. Um, but rather tried to reach out to all peoples. But I think for the most part, they got the message wrong, um, which is one of the reasons I think why we ended up with, you know, um, um, you know Aztec um, killing of uh, children and virgins and Lord knows what else. Um, but he gets a hold of this people um, in the midst of a pagan culture. And so much of what we see in the Old Testament is God really trying to shield 
the people he's trying to educate about his expectations of man. Uh, and so he has to go on the side of the Israelites against the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Amorites and everybody else. I mean, you've got to remember that in, in that fairly small region of the world, you know, you had lots of kingdoms, but they really were very small population groups. Mm-hmm. And so, Tribes, we, right? yeah, we, yeah, we find in the Old Testament this, this um, very bloody and horrible um, clearing out of paganism um, as, as a way of pre- creating and clearing a, uh, an area of protection for the people he's trying to bring to him. And of course, as we read the Old Testament, what we find is these people, as he calls them, are very stiff-necked people <laughs> and are constantly um, falling away. Um, so it's, it's, it's the Old Testament's this, this litany of please help us out, please help us out, please help us out. Thank you very much. Now let me go my own way. Um, and that's pretty much what occurs. I mean, they, they murder uh, the prophets that are sent to uh, try to, to guide and direct them. Um, you know, and it's pretty much all the way up until about uh, the 400 years before Christ, um, when God goes pretty silent. And of course, then we have the, uh, the, the occasion of God coming to us in a different way, in a personal way, um, through this human divine entity of Jesus Christ to really try to explain in terms that now first century Jews might understand. Some do, many don't. Mm-hmm. But um, that what we have um, following the crucifixion and all faith, absolutely all faith, is fundamentally based upon the crucifixion resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, there is no foundation for faith. So it's really the start, to my, from my standpoint, you have to start with the resurrection. If you cannot arrive at a belief in a risen Christ, then don't bother going further because you're not going to get anywhere. You might as well be an agnostic, an atheist, a Buddhist, whatever. <laughs> and what do you mean by you won't get anywhere? You, as a Christian, or you mean in general? Well, there is no Christian if you don't have. Well, sure, yeah. But no, tell me more is. what that means, because you had me up until that point. Okay, so, <laughs> well, what you have absent the resurrection um, is a nice itinerant rabbi who has some good philosophical points of view. Yeah. Um, and that's all well and good, but it doesn't have much sustainability for us as humankind uh, beyond that point. And this is very much like people are saying, well, I'm not a practicing Christian, but I'm a good person. I do good things. And of course, the Bible tells us um, not by deeds, but by faith. Um, you have to establish an understanding of your faith. You have to nurture your faith because only when you do that, only when you form uh, an informed basis for your belief, 
can you realistically share that with others in a meaningful way, uh, in a way that anyone would say, hmm, I want to understand that more, as opposed to a hey, nice thought and blow you off. Um, so I think you have to start at the resurrection. Uh, you have to start at, you know, why we should believe that there is a resurrected Christ Jesus. And I think when we study the period of the first century, if we study the period of the people of the first century, the people of Jerusalem at that time, and then we look at the progression through the second, third, fourth century writers, uh, we have to look at the connection between the apostles and those who would know them and then come to write about them. I think we have to look at why would any people subject themselves to the horrendous tortures um, of the Romans, uh, and I talked about it in my book, to be burned uh, on a stake, to be a, to be a light on the streets of Rome, to be crucified, uh, to be thrown into the Colosseum, either with lions or with strong men who are going to cut you to pieces. No one in their right mind does that. The modern day context of that is why would Christians um, in Iraq, in Iran, in the, those areas, um, be put to death by the sword, but not recant their faith? Why would they allow themselves to be put into cages and burned alive? Why would they allow themselves to be put in cages and drowned? No one in their right mind does that. So there's a correlation between first century Christians suffering bloody persecution and 21st century Christians still enduring it today. So one has to ask oneself, why? Why would they do that absent the resurrection and a promise of a life eternal beyond this death? In other words, Christ sets physical death aside. We're all going to die. That's unquestioned. But the question is, what live, lies beyond for us? And I think we can, we can follow that line up to apostolic succession, but of course, invariably and you talk about growing up as a, as a as a roman catholic um once you get beyond clement the first of rome um things things start to happen uh in the papal successions mm -hmm. and in the way the church evolves and we can look at the split between the church of the west and the church of the east um, there's a really, really good book. Um, try to remember. Let me see if I can find. It's called The Early History of Christianity. And, um, oh, gosh, 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 gosh. And it's by. Um, well, while you're looking for that, I, I do want to comment on what you just said. Because, you know, a lot of what um, 
Let me take take it this way. So, like, I really liked what you said, sort of relating the biblical stories in the Bible, the stories in the Bible, to the nature of you know humans at the time they were written, right? Because to me, and you know, I'll I'll uh, peel back the curtain a bit. There's, you know, there's a there's a gentleman named Jordan Peterson, who's a Canadian uh, uh, psychologist, psychiatrist. And uh, he's got a great series. He's got a podcast. He wrote a, a book called Maps of Meaning. But um, he basically tries uh, to take a rational look at the Bible. And it's fascinating. For instance, you know, you talk about the very early stories, Cain and Abel. That's a story about learning what sacrifice is, right? Mm-hmm. Giving up something of value that you have right now for something of more value in the future. And if you look at many of those Old Testament stories, in his opinion, that's what it is, is it's sort of man becoming conscious and telling stories in a way to figure out what the best way to live is, if, if, if I will. And the reason that the Bible is so valuable is a story like Cain and Abel or Adam and Eve or uh, Noah or anything along those lines. It is a story that's been told for 10,000 10, years, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And if you think about all of the possible stories that might have been told, whether it's true or not is, is irrelevant, right? Um, you know, it has survived and it's survived for good reason because it informs how you ought to live your life. And so you, you live your life, you start to tell stories and act out the stories and that becomes uh, you know, a, a path to whatever it is you want to call what we're seeking, right? And so I like the concept of that. And, and as man has evolved and developed as a societal creature in, a, in, a, in his culture, the stories change to inform the next step in that journey. Um, and, and so I really like that. And I, you know, I, and you probably heard me like the thing that I question or am probably agnostic about is, you know, is, was Jesus actually an historical figure and was he resurrected? And to me, like, I, and I understand where I'm coming from. And I think there's a piece that I, you know, clearly I don't have, but, you know, Socrates did the same thing, right? Like some of the things you were talking about in terms of, Christians being persecuted or being willing to sacrifice themselves for an ideal, that's exactly what Socrates did. So in my mind, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, this is the only path or the only answer. And and that's the way I look at it too, is to me, like there is a God, I believe, and there is value in having a relationship with God. But I think there are many paths to it, to him or her, however you want to conceive it. And yeah, there are, there are bad paths, right? Like you said, the Aztec culture, it's dead and there's probably good reason for it because of, of many things, including their religion. But, um, but I think there are valuable paths, um, that aren't solely owned by Christianity. Uh, you know, like is, is the Dalai Lama, a, a religious and spiritual person? And my answer is, is absolutely. So how do, you, how do you think about that? Well, I think without question, the Dalai Lama is a magnificent um, human being. 
an extraordinarily um, spiritual person. Um, but I think there's got to be a defining point as to why we are Christian. As I said, I believe that comes back to, and you know, you said, was there a, was there a, a really a person in the nature of Jesus Christ? I think the answer to that, um, when we look at um, early first, second century historian writers um, who've documented um, that reality, Josephus, mm-hmm. um, Tacitus, uh, Suetonius. Um, one can reasonably conclude that this person did in fact live uh, in that place in that time and that in fact there was a crucifixion. Um, Why should we believe in the resurrection? I think, again, we don't have a conclusive proof that says, I was there other than the gospel writers, Um, and then we question their motives, perhaps. But I kind of look at it from a different perspective. Um, When we look at the story, uh, and of course the the women, you remember Christ is taken down, Joseph of Arimathea um, provides his tomb. It's a new cut tomb that he gives up for the burial of the body of, of Jesus. Mm. And so he's, he's wrapped in linens and placed within the tomb. Uh, the stone is rolled across the face. Now there are different players involved in this story. Um, significantly, we have the, uh, the, the, the members of the Sanhedrin and um, the Pharisees absolutely do not want this story of a resurrecting to become accepted. Mm -hmm. So they want to make absolutely sure that that body stays in that tomb. So they appeal to Pilate for a guard to be placed and a seal to be placed on the tomb. The, and we say, well, well, don't the disciples, don't the 11, uh, Judas's, gone. Don't the 11 want to see this affirmation of this prophetic risen Jesus to be solidified? And of course, if you if you read the scriptures, um, what we find is <laughs> they quite often had a difficulty understanding who in fact Jesus was, um, even when he walked among them. Not only that, they just seen this most horrendous crucifixion, um, hours on a cross, dying. Um, they realized that they might very well be next because the Pharisees know who they are and surely don't want them hanging around continuing this story of these people called a part of the way. They, they wouldn't become Christians until... Uh, Antioch. Mm-hmm. So um, they certainly are not going to be uh, going out and, and trying to hide the body. Not only that, but no Pharisee, remember they're still Jews, 
no Jew is going to go and touch a dead body um, during Passover. So it's, it's totally against their faith. Um, and then you'd have to ask yourself, if you were writing this story in the first century, why would you have the women coming back to the disciples and saying, he's gone, he's not there? Women had no standing in first century Palestine. Mm -hmm. That would be a ludicrous plot to try to put forward. So when you start taking all of those things in combination, you really have to say to yourself, this must have happened, surely, because it wasn't just the disciples. There were hundreds of people who we are informed uh, come to see Jesus, the risen Lord. We also know that um, there are more extant copies of different aspects of the Bible's stories, the 66 stories. People mistakenly think the Bible is a book. It's not. It's, as you know, 66 books. Mm -hmm. There are more extant examples of that, um, whether we're looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, whether we're looking at uh, stone inscriptions or copper plates, whatever, uh, than of any other thing written in the history of human beings. Mm -hmm. So that has to account for something. Then if you go forward and we look at the revelation to Saul, who we come to know as the apostle, as the uh, as Paul, St. Paul, yep. um, here is a man who grew up as a Pharisee. Uh, he was educated by one of the uh, finest scholarly minds of, of uh, the Jewish faith at the time in Jerusalem. Um, he persecutes Christians. Um, not only does he persecute them, he obtains letters from the governors to, uh, to go out and round up as many as he can. But here uh, on the road to Damascus, I believe it is, um, he comes into contact with Jesus. He's blinded, he's led to meet with another man who is in great fear of him because he is a Christian, uh, and he becomes one of the most ardent apologists for an advocate of Christ's teachings. Um, he walks, I think, the equivalent of, of thousands of miles um, all around the area over into parts of Turkey and, and uh, Greece. He goes to, to Athens. Um, we start taking these realities. Now, that, that, that is historical reality. And you say to yourself, okay, um, does that not add significantly to the story of the resurrected Lord? You can move further forward um, into, was it 312 AD, and um, Constantine uh, at the Battle of Milvian on the Milvian Bridge uh, has a vision that if he is to place the, the old Christian sign of the cross onto the shields and the flags of his men, he'll be victorious. Mm -hmm. uh, he does so. He is. He then ultimately defeats their, 
there are three basic emperors of the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, he defeats the other two, becomes the supreme emperor, uh, and and through him, Christianity in the Roman Empire goes from approximately 5% of the population to some 50% over a relatively short period of time. And then, of course, he goes on to basically establish Constantinople as the uh, as the centre of, of, of the Christian faith. And it remains so until, was it, 14... The, the conquest of... Um, the... Uh, uh, having a brain freeze. <laughs> no worries, no worries. So, um, yeah, no, I do admire your faith. And I, my question is, for people like myself that question that faith or maybe have even lost it, what's the one thing you recommend they do to begin that journey? Speak to other people who have a sound, <clears throat> excuse me, grounding uh, in their faith. Explore the why questions or explore why. Why don't I believe? And then unravel the nature of your unbelief. You know, I grew up with, um, and I never grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. But I grew up with many of my school friends who had. They were riddled with guilt. Mm -hmm. And that's like the first, yeah, that's the first aspect of being Roman Catholic. Yeah, which, which um, really gave rise to my questioning the, and, and let me be very clear. Look, when we look at Roman Catholicism, um, there are many wonderful aspects to it. I think we have the, um, the centers of learning of the monastic movement in the fourth century. Mm -hmm. um, really, the, the, the efforts to, to educate um, uh, are brilliant. But if I look at the Reformation, um, and you know, we can debate Luther or not Luther or whatever, but if I look at the Reformation and I look at the experience of Martin Luther, when um, was Pope Gregory the Tenth um, was in the, seat, in the seat of the papal seat in the Vatican, and you know the 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 Church throughout the period of the Borgias and the de Medici's, yeah, um, you know it was all about the money, man. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but like yeah. as a young as a young adult, you know, uh, like I said, 17, 18 years old, that was a major problem is you look at the history of the Roman Catholic Church and it's, you know, I'm sorry to say for those who are Catholic, but it's a history of politics and murder and uh, greed and avarice and all these like you know the the history of the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, if you will, is is you know has a lot to do with 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 that church. Now, it, like you said, having gotten older, you start to realize too that you know a lot of the things that were known from as far as education and continuing reading and writing and you know things that we take for granted today, that church also did that, right? Like uh, some of the some of the. Things that oh, and Greeks, art, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and art, yeah, certainly. Some of the things that the Greeks and the Romans and the, uh, quite honestly, the Persians, 
knew, you know, uh, were only, you know, continued or, or we know about today because of the Catholic Church. So, you know, like anything else, it's good and bad. But yeah, I mean, like the history really presents problems for me. Well, you know, the church, um, as my friend Bishop Donlan reminds me, goes through a schism about every 500 years. Um, the, the Reformation was, was just such a schism. And when you come out of um, the plague that decimated um, Europe and, and the British Isles, um, it was an upheaval that um, had no respect for any class of society. So whether you were a scholar, um, an artist, a philosopher, um, a theologian, a lawyer, uh, a craftsperson, you weren't immune. I mean, people were dying left, right, and center. And so, so the societal model of Europe changed. I think what was the biggest factor that impacted the Reformation was the fact that, you know, pretty much at that time, the church was the only place where the Bible would be shared. It was interpreted by the priests. Mm -hmm. um, we had the doctrine of penance, um, which was an incorrect translation by St. Jerome in the fourth century of do penance rather than become penitent. In other words, Pain, it's, right? it's one thing to turn away from sin, but you've got to have an amendment of life that goes along with that, you know. Um, and I think that was totally misconstrued. And so then we get into indulgences, we get into the sale of the offices of the church, whether it's a bishopric or whether it's a, a, a priesthood. Um, things have really become unraveled. And of course, as Luther is selected to go to Rome to represent his, uh, uh, his monastery, um, the closer he gets to Rome, the more he finds that his fellow monks are living in yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty good circumstances. <laughs> and of course, he gets to Rome and he finds an abomination. We have child, you know, we have male prostitution, you know, child prostitution, female prostitution, male prostitution. Uh, the church is a mess, and the sacramental duties of the priesthood uh, really have been diminished greatly. Um, and so he's appalled. He comes back, um, and, and, uh, and I'm not going to get into the long history of his family life and growing up and blah, blah, blah. But um, he comes to realize that rather than seeing God as a punishing overlord, he finds in Christ salvation mm. uh, and an understanding of Scripture from his reading of both the Greek and the Hebrew. And, of course, he's elated and, and wants to share that. Um, the painting of the, uh, of, of, um, the 29 positions that he nails on, or 50, whatever the number is, nails on the church door at Wittenberg, um, he's in a university city, he's, he's seeking a debate. He's not at that time challenging the papal authority, but of course he will come to do that as things start to go down the tubes and he 
comes under notice of a papal bull and is called to uh, different investigations by um, um, Cardinal Cayetan. Uh, he ends up at the Diet of Worms under investigation. He's told he has to recant and basically have all of his writings and teachings burned. But the, um, um, the horse is out the barn at that time because thanks to uh, Gutenberg uh, and the press, his writings have been now transcribed into the German of that day. Um, and very, very quickly, uh, very quickly, are disseminated, not just throughout the, um, the Roman Empire, that is in large part old Germany, but in a matter of weeks uh, end up in, in Spain. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers in Jerusalem. You know, it's a very similar story. And I think it it really informs human institutions, right? There's this, this uh, concept that I think you find invariably in any institution where over time as it develops and uh, potentially gains power, when it gains power and... and and the power increases, uh, you know, it becomes more corrupt. And, yeah. to, you know, as you said, you know, it needs uh, refresh, restart, sometimes painfully so, but um, but it happens. And uh, it's, it's part of the story of good versus evil or order versus chaos, too, is that, you know, part of part of that uh, journey is, you know, the, the person at the top of the hierarchy that is order and the person that is outside the hierarchy is chaos, but also questioning the structure and the order and the nature of that hierarchy. And uh, it's sort of a constant constant battle you can find in, in probably every aspect of human life, literature, and art. But I, uh, we're getting late, so I do want to ask you, um, and, it, and it sort of relates to that, how does your faith inform your views on politics and the current environment? I know you talked a little bit about the state of affairs of the United States today in the beginning. So let's sort of go full circle there and, and tell me more about how your faith informs your views there. Um, you know, I, I, I think probably just as a human condition, um, like religion, politics uh, is subject to the flawed nature of, of man. And um, you know, we can define or try to define good or evil, but um, at the bottom line, I think we could probably conclude that with maybe very limited, if any exceptions, politicians act largely in self-interest and either party or any party, um, particularly in today's world when there is so much money being thrown about, I think we, the people, are at the mercy of what has become a system that is significantly corrupted beyond that which the Founding Fathers envisioned. Mm-hmm. Um, thank God we still have a constitution that I think has stood the test of time, but we also have a judicial arm that has become increasingly activist and has become engaged to a large extent in framing and writing law as opposed to 
interpreting law from a constitutional perspective. So I think um, we're in a very real place of danger right now because this country has become uh, excruciatingly polarized, which in and of itself is danger. Um, we are loath to express opinions for fear of reprisal, whether that reprisal comes in the form of um, a put down on Facebook or uh, a physical reprisal um, should you be walking around wearing the wrong hat. Um, this is a very dangerous place for America. This is not who we are supposed to be. And we are supposed to be a nation of laws. If we do not return to that, I think what we're seeing is the emergence of anarchy. And I think we've seen since 2015, this anarchy growing in intensity. Uh, and I think we should all be very worried about that. The one thing that concerns me the most is that I look, I earned the right to vote in 2000, I think it was 2003, when I became a citizen. As I said, it took four and a half years to get a green card. I didn't become a citizen for many years after that because quite honestly, coming from Australia, um, the only thing I was really missing, I paid my taxes, I enjoyed the uh, quality of life in America, uh, I just couldn't vote. And I really felt after 2001 that there was an important need to express one's opinions at the polls and stand up for what you believe in. But my concern since then has become, does my vote count? Can my, can my vote be corrupted in a system of polling that has become increasingly, in my opinion, suspect. It has various forms across different states. Um, we have states that have refused to have their polls audited. We've always had the wonderful um, Chicago situation where dead people have voted for decades, but now it's taken on a different scale. It has taken on a scale that I think um, could sway an election, and that should not be so. Uh, the vote of each legal citizen is sacrosanct, and it should be protected by all means possible. The other thing I look to is if we can't trust our vote, can we trust in the government that is voted in? Mm. What we have experienced over the last three and a half years, again, in my opinion, is an overt attempt even before the swearing in of the president an overt attempt to overturn the expressed will by the vote of the people. We have an electoral system. We are a republic 
not a democracy, although we have dem democratic processes inherent in parts of, of our political life, but we're a republic. We vote to elect people to represent us. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people don't like that. They would rather see a popular vote. Well, that would deny the rights of many smaller states than the likes of California or New York or uh, Illinois, etc., um, which would be in, in total contradiction of what the framers of the Constitution had in mind. They valued the ability of we the people to express whom we want to represent us. And they put into the Constitution the protections of the form of government that we currently enjoy. So <clears throat> we have a bicameral, bicameral um, Congress with an upper and a lower house, Senate and the House of Representatives. Um, we have a White House, the, the um, executive branch, uh, and, and we have the uh, judicial branch, which has just gone through um, a very big change in the last 48 hours. Mm. Um, so if we see an increasing degree of anarchy because some section of the populace does not get what they want, then I think we're going to see the potential for not just merely division, but I think we have the potential of a much more significant form of conflict here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I agree with just about everything you said, and it, it is important that uh, we have an electoral college and process and a republic. I mean. Uh, I was speaking with somebody else on this topic uh, recently and, you know, if not for the simple example is, you know, people complain Hillary won the popular vote in 2016, which of course she did, but take out California and she lost it, right? So, you know, you could very easily campaign in places like California, New York, and maybe five or six very large cities of our largest cities and be elected president and... Uh, have promised them the world and to your point the rest of us you know <laughs> are uh, are you know not involved in the equation right so it is an imperfect system but it's it's well thought out and it and and the pieces that people like are in place for a reason uh, first and foremost to slow down the sort of you know emotional outrage that's going on now like you know defunding police departments and um, yeah, it's it's for good reason and by very thoughtful people and and to throw it out is 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 dangerous. And so I appreciate that. I um, we are running up uh, towards the end of our our podcast. And if you've listened before, then you are prepared for what's going to happen next, which is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. Ooh. And these questions originally came from a French TV show. It was called Bouillon de Couture, hosted by Bernard Pivot. Uh, but I came to see them and love them from a show called Inside the Actor's Studio that was on, I think, A&E um, with James Lipton. Anyway, um, I'm going to ask you them in, a, in a, their 10 questions. They're pretty simple, but uh, uh, hopefully uh, this will go well. So the first one is, what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Why? 
Why? That's a great word. What What is your least favorite word? Um. Hmm. Can't. Can't. I like it. Oh, I just said it like you too. I got to say it American now. I'm sorry. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, the search for knowledge mm-hmm. and understanding. Yeah. Uh, as a quick aside, I watched recently, uh, it was a podcast, YouTube video, but uh, it was two professors, one a conservative, his name's Robert P. George, I think he teaches at Princeton, and one a liberal, uh, Cornell West, who teaches at Harvard, and it was all about how to talk to people, you know, a- across the aisle, if you will, and, and that was the number one answer, is just seek truth. If you're yes. seeking truth, if the purpose of your discussion is to seek truth, there's no issues. It's when, when you turn it into something else that we have problems. Well, and I, and I think to the point about the political situation today, much as I said about um, faith and religion, I think one has to ask the question and keep asking the question, why? And I think to that point, you really have to go back almost to the 1930s when Ayn Rand, who wrote um, Atlas Shrugged, mm-hmm. I mean, coming from Russia and... Uh, the emerging communist um, system there really saw the, uh, the the seeds of communism growing in America. And I think what we've seen, you've got to really look back over decades at this um, slowly emerging socialist uh, sentiment mm-hmm. that has really blossomed just in the last four years. For sure, and we don't have time to talk about it, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the the critical theories, right, which include critical race theory and some others, you know, it's based in postmodernism, it's neo-Marxist, and it is, you know, there there is nothing but power, there is nothing but oppressed and oppressor, and that's the way all aspects of life are informed, and, and yeah, it's quite dangerous. The history of the 20th century is millions and millions of people dying based upon that sort of philosophy, so I'm with you there. But let's get back to the questions. I just sure. asked you what turns you on. What turns you off? Ignorance. Ignorance. I like it. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> Bloody. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Right. Uh, uh, no, no, no. But, and let me let me say why. Because in Australia, it's it's a very common term. It's not even considered um, a, a swear word. Just as bastard, yeah. you, you know, you can call your best friend "you stupid bastard." <laughs> uh, it's 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 if he's your best friend, it's not offensive. Yeah. Um, there are multiple ways that you can say "bastard" that will have a totally different context. Um. For sure. I mean, that's the nature of language, right? It's such a uh, blunt instrument that, you know, it, it really is informed by your own listening, whether you get offended by it, regardless of what the word is, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> For sure. Okay. So uh, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, a good symphony. Mm. Do you have a favorite composer? Um, well, I have, I, I mean, I love Mozart. Um, um, I like, um, uh, what's his name? Who wrote Marvlas? Um, the, the Czech 
uh, again, brain freeze. Um, <laughs> I, I like, uh, and by the way, I love some of the work of the Beatles that has been orchestrated. Um, mm-hmm. Just brilliant. I yeah. Think. We were just watching the other night, our power went out, so we were uh, forced to run the generator and God forbid not have the internet. So we had to go to the DVD collection. We watched a concert for George. Uh, it was put on by Eric Clapton and Jeff Lynne and a bunch of other folks the, a year to the day after George Harrison died. But the first section of it is Ravi Shankar's daughter conducting an Indian orchestra. And it's fascinating. It's so cool. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. Yep. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? Chalk on a breadboard. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you on that. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Ah, I'm not sure I've ever had a profession. <laughs> um, well, yeah, just don't, you know, take whatever you have done. And yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had, uh, my wife will say probably eight or nine careers. Sure. Um, I'm intrigued both by philosophy um, physics, oh, also cosmology. Um, hmm. I think if I could, uh, if I could go back and uh, have had a better math teacher for three years in a row, um, I would have loved to progress to physics. Uh, I'm fascinated by physics. Hmm. Yeah. What profession would you not like to do? Lawyer. Yeah, for sure. All right, the last question. I know it's got a uh, uh, preamble that says, if heaven exists, but we can leave that out. What would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, I mean, the classical expression is, uh, as, he, as he said of his son, well done. Um, <laughs> I think I'd like to be told that I made a good effort at understanding him. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. That uh, ends podcast today, Graham. I really appreciate you coming on, and I uh, I enjoyed talking to you today. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, most enjoyable, Justin. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Well, that ends the podcast today. My name's Justin Weller. You can find me on Twitter at The Country USA. Also, uh, we're on the web at thecountry.news. He's Graham Woodbrook. He's got a book called Why God, Why Now? It's on Amazon and Kindle for sure. And uh, you can read his blog at trybelieving.com. Thanks so much for listening. Peace out. Never escape to the country And stand there to listen Watch it all come crashing down just to know